0: Hello, and welcome to The Quantum Divide. This is the podcast that talks about the literal divide between classical IT and quantum technology. And the fact that these two domains are, will, and need to become closer together. Ultimately, this podcast is going to be a combination of one-to-one podcast recordings, myself and my esteemed colleague, Steve, discussing different topics around quantum networking, quantum computing, uh, and so on. And we'll we'll pepper the agenda with a number of interview topics. I'm looking forward to bringing in a whole broad selection of individuals working in and around the quantum technology space that should really bring some fantastic conversations and interesting debate as we go. We're going to try and focus on networking topics. Quantum networking actually is more futuristic than perhaps the computing element of it. But we're going to try and focus on that domain, but we're bound to experience many different tangents, both in podcast topics and and conversation as we go on. And just as a reminder, I'm Dan home. I'm, I'm not classically trained in quantum physics or physics of any sort, really. So I'll be the one on the call in the conversations, asking the stupid questions, and hopefully those stupid questions serve as a platform for you to help understand some of the topics that we discuss. Enjoy.
1: Okay. Let's see. So I guess we start with discussing why cloud quantum computing is a good idea and why that's going to be the only way to access quantum computers in the near future.
0: Yeah, I thought we'd record this episode to talk about cloud computing because the global hyperscalers, they're really embedded into the way a lot of computing is done these days in many different ways, whether it's hosting infrastructure or providing access to compute capabilities to process individual functions. But the benefits of cloud computing are clearly going to, and already are, simplifying and democratizing access to quantum computers. So the benefits of elasticity, cost savings. Let's start with that. I guess it costs quite a lot to build and manage a quantum computer, yeah. I think if you Google for that, other search engines are available, obviously. But if you search for that, there's normally at least six zeros on the end of it. Mm. But I'm sure it's more complex than that because of the team's required to to manage the thing. Maybe it's worth us just digging into that, first of all. Like, mm. What makes a managing and owning a quantum computer expensive? Mm. Yeah, I guess the first
1: things are the environment that the quantum computer has to sit in. So firstly, that has to be a controlled environment, probably has to be a relatively secure environment, limiting access to who can get into these spaces in the first place. And that's just, okay, that's just a start. Where does the quantum computer go? And then when you think about the technology, it needs to be used to do the quantum computing. It probably needs to be cooled to extremely low levels. And then, again, you need some kind of refrigeration schemes that are very difficult to build, probably. A lot of chemicals used to perform the refrigeration, the tubing, all the connections in place just to pro- provide the chemicals into the refrigerator. So you need good infrastructure in the first place. And then all that needs to be maintained and refilled and all the, watching every step along the way. Okay, and then that's just the physical components of it. And then you need electronic components as well. And the electronic components and the software, then you need hardware, very precise hardware, very advanced technology as well. And all that needs a very specialized person to do that type of thing. You can't just pick someone up off the street to start building your quantum computer. So all those things considered, I can understand why six zeros <laughs> are in that number. Yeah,
0: easily. Mm. I, I've read, I often see the term sub-Kelvin, mm. which means uh, going all the way down to between zero and one Kelvin, mm. which is incredibly low temperatures. So yeah, the hardware to do that is extremely specialist and expensive to maintain. Yeah, so it's not something you're going to buy and put on your desk at home.
1: I was gonna say, Although there are some efforts towards building desktop quantum computers. <laughs> but Generally, you're not going to have one in your house because it's the environment is not good enough. It's too much infrastructure at the moment. Although we-
0: It's a bit early for that, I would, so I would agree. Yeah. Um, from what I can tell, the accuracy of the measurements and things and the precision that's needed in the hardware, it's, it's a lab environment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a science lab environment. Yeah. People have to wear white coats <laughs> with pens in their top pocket. Right. And walk around with clipboards.
1: It's a lot involved with maintaining a quantum computer. Uh, and then, yeah. And Then there's the ability to access them, even within the lab. So you can't just go up to the quantum computer and plug in your USB stick and running a program, most likely. Uh, you need ways to interface with the quantum computer. And those ways are also not easy. It's not the average person who can interface with a quantum computer. So <laughs> generally you need... So FPGA programming or something like that to, to really, I guess, once you have the FPGAs set up, you can interface the FPGAs and that simplifies things too, but generally it's not the average person who's going to have one. It's not like an easy access to either programming them or maintaining them. Yeah. yeah well,
0: you just got to look in the media and your pictures of quantum computers and obviously, it's a big frame of cooling apparatus with ultimately a chip at the bottom, mm. which often you won't be able to see. But in the FPGAs you're talking about driving the signals into that chip, basically. And there's specialized hardware which send the pu- pulses, or whether it be light or electromagnetism or uh, microwaves or something, at the individual qubits in the chip. That whole chain of activity is extremely specialist, right? It's not something you can buy off the
1: shelf. That's right, yeah. I think every company probably does a different at the moment. And I would be doubtful that there are any standards that exist yet for that as well. I think it's too new to have any standards. So you can't just go to any manufacturer and know that whatever they give you is going to work. You have to probably develop your own software on top every time. You might get the FPGA, but how to program the FPGA, I think this is completely open still. Yeah, As well, yeah. Although it just gets harder and harder to uh, get a personalized quantum computer because there's so many components (laughs) that you have to do on your own.
0: Absolutely. Although there was promising news this week, actually, from Intel. I don't know. Did you see that? Intel's first silicon spin quantum qubit device released to the research community.
1: I didn't see that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, of course. you were on holiday.
0: Yeah. I forgive you, then. I forgive you. You should look up Intel's Tunnel Falls. They've released... Basically, a silicon qubit device. And I guess that's one step towards standardization when silicon vendors or semiconductor manufacturers are developing something that can be used by different organizations mm-hmm. to, to then make the computers as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Having a one chip that everyone's using that will make things a lot easier, especially standardizing things, yeah, simplifies the process.
0: It's only one step in a very long chain. Mm. sorry. <laughs> it is the first. So let's see, it is significant. Yeah.
1: But that's why I think, at least for the next, I'd say, 10 years, people will just access quantum computers to the cloud.
0: Yeah. Thank you for bringing it back to the <laughs> topic of the pod. Yeah. The, the way the cloud. The cloud provides agility and global access to resources instantly and that kind of thing. And that's exactly what is needed in the quantum world because it's very expensive to run the quantum computer and operate it. Mm. Whereas the hyperscalers, they have these cloud platforms which are already extremely mature when it comes to managing platforms and infrastructure as a service. So they're perfectly set up to act as a kind of go-between. I know that some quantum computer vendors may have their own platform as well. I don't know whether there's a layering of platforms there, but in your experience, what's, what does the market look like there? And it seems that the top three hyperscalers are offering some quantum computing services of some type with different quantum computing vendors. but does that mean they have bought the quantum computers and they're running them in their data center, or are they just acting as a middleman?
1: I think with the exception of IBM, the remainder of the companies offering that service are using it as, a, they're acting as the middleman. So they collect the information for running quantum algorithms, so the program instructions and the metadata around the program. And then they send that off to whoever's quantum computer needs to run. And I think each company who's hosting their quantum computer on those platforms, they probably have those. On site in their own in their own labs, so they're just acting as they're basically taking their platforms like, you know, AWS who has this whole infrastructure for serverless and all those kind of microservices that they perform, and I think they just take that infrastructure and they just point it at the quantum computer. In a very simplistic explanation, (laughs) but with much more detail, of course. But in a way, I think that's what they're doing: they're using their infrastructure to just recycle and then apply it to the quantum computers i think same with microsoft but with ibm they have their own quantum computers and i think they do it a little bit differently i think they've really started from scratch in a way that they yeah they've set up their whole infrastructure bottom up and it's all designed for quantum computing at least okay and there's just in that particular offering that they have
0: it's not consistent at the moment, right? There's lots of different options out there. Perhaps you can just explore a few mm-hmm. that you're familiar with, but yeah, I've seen different quantum computing vendors available on multiple cloud platforms and it makes sense. That's the way they do it. And I suspect most of the quantum computer providers have their own SDKs. So Qiskit obviously is the IBM one Cirque is related to Google somehow, mm-hmm. but then It seems most of the services are offered through some kind of Python front end, like a Jupyter notebook or something with the SDK enabled. I guess that's the quickest way to get access to running. If you want to run an algorithm, you you define it in, uh, you write it in Python or something with the libraries from the SDKs from a particular platform. You can then simulate that locally and test it runs and so on. And then you can put that through a Jupyter notebook to a third party, right? That's the way I've seen it done. But is there more of a programmatic approach to that? Because obviously the notebook approach is great for developing and testing around and playing with things. But if you want to do something a bit more serious and programmatic, there must be APIs that can be used through the SDK in a piece of code that you write locally for a program. So if you want to write a program that is predominantly classical, but it needs to run something that performs better on a quantum computer, say a search algorithm across some unstructured data, then what does that look like? What's the optimal way of doing that? Which, what other options have you got?
1: I think the best offering in terms of APIs right now, from my experience is the IBM one because they offer a way to access their computers through the Python scripts. So you don't need Jupyter notebooks. So most of the time you have to go on the particular platform using the Jupyter notebook, like you said, and then you write your code in there and then you're already on their servers. And then you can run an interface with the quantum computers that way. But with the IBM version, you get your API key, you just run some commands to get the connection established, and then you can write quite complex programs where you use the quantum computers within your programs. So you can do a lot of the classical parts and then you send off a job to the quantum part you wait for the job to return and then you can continue with your classical parts and you can write quite complex software in that way. And it's nice that they offer the API that you don't have to always connect to the the Jupyter notebooks and stuff. But there are some pitfalls of that, that I've experienced myself. Some of them are that you need a stable internet connection, especially if you don't have direct access to the quantum computers. So if you have to queue up your job, for example and you need the output of the the job to continue your algorithm, then sometimes it's, it could be a bit challenging. The outputs are saved on like JSON files on the web interface. But if you are queuing and you want to just take the measurement results and apply them into your classical algorithm and you lose internet connection, then you have to restart and you might have to queue up again. So you lose those results. The job is in a queue, but you don't have connection to the Python script anymore. And sometimes these things can take 10 hours to run. They take quite some time. And if you disconnect in those 10 hours, you might need to start from scratch. (laughs) So it's a nice program, but if you're not in a stable internet connection, you could have some issues, even though it works really well in theory. That could be the benefit of using the Jupyter notebooks is you just connect to the Jupyter notebook and the connections are probably much more stable. They're not over the internet, they're probably just over a local network. So what's the pros and cons of that. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. So what makes the wait so long? Is it is the queue typically that there's a high demand for people running, needing to schedule jobs because I would think, and here comes a stupid question, I think most Quantum algorithms would run very quickly within milliseconds, but as the quantum algorithms which we develop, which are complex enough that it takes hours to run.
1: Mm. So the algorithm itself to execute one shot of the algorithm, probably, yeah, like you said, it takes like maybe millisecond, millisecond range, maybe even less. So you have to repeat that many times. So that's already a hundred thousand times, let's say, before you get some meaningful statistics okay then but even while you're running the algorithms there's things that happen behind the scenes so i think they often run like calibration on the hardware they have some the pause your job internally or you might have to you run your job once you need to run something else and you to go back in line there's a lot of things that are not just executing the algorithm that come into play with the timing I think also involved is the conversion of the algorithm to machine instruction and optimization processes that happen before running. So there's like a lot of pre-processing, post-processing. I think the shortest part is probably running on the quantum computer, but yeah, there's a lot of things that surround that little part that take a lot of time as well. So it's, uh, it's
0: fascinating. And in your experience, do you get any visibility of that in any other platforms? other than seeing the job's called a very long delay, or it's being re yeah.
1: I think, I would guess a lot of people don't say what they're doing. We hadn't seen, like IBM has some explanation, but it doesn't say exactly what is the status of your job. And it could have changed in the last two years. I haven't used it in well, about yeah, two years. Maybe it's different now, but from my experience, it's kind of like queued, done, mistake, something like that. And then you can see the last maintenance schedule on each quantum computer. You can see the status of the quantum computer is up or down, how many jobs are queued already. So you can have an idea, like if you want to use that particular quantum computer, how long before you get access to it. But there's also different ways of queuing that they have. So if you pay for the service, you can skip the queue. Sometimes Uh, you might even get a designated slot. You can actually reserve the quantum computer for some block of time. In that sense, no one can access the quantum computer except for you. Of course, that doesn't come for free. So you have to be a partner of the IBM quantum network. So in general, it's I, I'm actually not exactly sure why it takes so long, but it's just my assumptions that there's a lot of things happening behind this. There'd be many reasons. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: For basic algorithms, it took like hours.
0: <laughs> and in terms of programming languages, you know, I've mentioned Python because it's just everywhere. It's ubiquitous and used in so many di- on so many different hardware platforms. I assume that there's programming language you use, as long as there's an SDK, it doesn't really matter as long as it can convert the, in fact, let's talk about that was it that the programming language used to do with an SDK and what does the SDK do and take it. So if the programming language can describe your quantum circuit in terms of gates, which is the way you describe. The algorithm in, in the hardware abstraction on what each qubit is doing, but then that needs to be transcoded somehow and needs to be converted into different formats. So, do you know about the SDKs enough to
1: talk about them? Now, when a little bit, yeah. I think, like you said, it's, it doesn't really matter what programming language you use because it's at the moment programming quantum computers is at the gate level, so you're just writing machine instruction piece by piece. Yeah. So if when you write these machine instructions, they probably get converted into this language called Chasm. And Chasm just is a kind of a unified way of sending instructions to the quantum computers. So they're not Python anymore. It's like very close to assembly level. It doesn't really matter, like which language you write the gates in and then you send it to Chasm. And Chasm is the language that probably goes to the quantum computers anyway. The only thing that's a benefit of the SDKs is how they perform optimization of the gates. So you write your gate instructions and they might not be the optimal set of gates. So each SDK has its optimization software. So IBM has some, I think Continuum also has some software regarding that. And each one performs a little different and they could make your gates a lot shorter and then get better performance when you execute on the quantum computers. So that's, I think that's the main advantage, the optimization parts, but After that, it's, it doesn't matter once you have the circuit, if it's pretty optimal, if you write it in Python, write it in C, it's going to be the same thing at the end of the day it'll just go down to the chasm level. Yeah.
0: Okay. And the outputs tend to just be probabilities, right? Is that right? Your code abstracts what the outcomes are to whatever it is the algorithm is doing, Mm but is there a standard way that the outputs are spat out from all of the computers, different computers?
1: That also, I think is a SDK specific thing. So from my experience, I've used a bit of the QCWare Forge and then used the IBM platform. Both of them have, okay, this is two years ago, so it could be changed. I don't know, but when I was working with those platforms, the outputs were different and you had to program what to do with the outputs a little bit differently. You probably do your own post-processing. These days it might be different, but like I said, it's been a while. But IBM tends to have a cleaner output. They have this JSON output and you just use that JSON output and you extract different properties of the output. So you have the measurement results and the statistics, you have things like the runtime, how long it took, all kinds of details about the output. So it has very detailed outputs and with those you can do things like your own error mitigation, for example, you can try other things. So you get a lot of freedom with, uh, with the IBM outputs. I don't know if every platform offers that level of detail, but they should. They don't. <laughs> I think it's an important thing to have. Yeah. But the outputs are, yeah, there's no standard for the outputs, but generally you at least get the output state in the computational basis with the number of times that state occurred. So if you run your algorithm a thousand times, it'll tell you you have got state one, 10 times, state two, 500 times, et cetera, until you get to the total number of shots. And then you have your statistics and you can do the post-processing however you need. That would be the minimum, I think. The minimum you get is that. And then the rest is nice things to have. It's, you know, what I'm getting
0: from this is it's still very low level, both the inputs and the outputs. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it makes me think, what are the decisions that need to be made or the things that need to be considered in order to decide if something warrants using the quantum cloud service? I guess that's the same question as... Warrants using a quantum computer. Mm-hmm. Does it have to be something that can be optimized using some of the main algorithms, like George Jose, I mentioned Grover, mm-hmm. those kind of things. And then how would you know, or how would you test that it's worthwhile? I guess that's what simulation is for. Would you just personally, would you simulate it locally? Would you simulate it in the cloud?
1: How do you go about that? Mm-hmm. There's a trade-off point I think when you can, when you probably want to run it in the cloud versus locally, and that just depends on the system size, because they offer things like GPU accelerated quantum computing, and if you don't have that, then the cloud really offers a meaningful service there. So you can run simulation of twenty, thirty qubits, and you don't you don't have to wait so long. Maybe the computers we have on my laptop probably can't run a thirty qubit simulation. They'll probably have no option but to send it to the cloud. There's one thing I would say as a warning though is sometimes when you send your algorithms to the IBM cloud or the NEA cloud, you're basically telling them exactly what you want to execute and you're giving them a lot of information about what you want to, what your algorithm is doing. So there you might think about what to run locally first in case you don't want to give away your algorithm. Maybe you have a new algorithm for doing something important. And then you want to simulate in one of these cloud platforms. When you upload that algorithm to their platform, you tell them exactly what you've done. And maybe they it's clear to them, but they can read that, right? <laughs> it's not private. So that's a thing where people talk about blind quantum computing, so you don't have to give away the algorithm. That's a little different. Do you need some kind of quantum communication? There's an argument to make, <laughs> are you willing to give away your algorithm? And then yes or no <laughs> it dictates if you want to run in the cloud or not. But yeah, generally it's hard to run anything locally. You need power, (laughs) it's the hard things to
0: compute. Blind quantum computing, that sounds like a great topic Mm -hmm. for a future pod. So uh, just focusing on that same question again. So it really just comes down to compute. And would you recommend simulating always, many times in advance to get a feel for whether your algorithm is worthy of the quantum computer or vice versa? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it's necessary, at least in some way, at least a small scale to know that the algorithm is going to work because you're consuming so many resources by sending to the quantum computer. you might take five hours to get something that takes half a millisecond on your computer. <laughs> so you're waiting magnitudes longer for very simple results. So you always want to simulate locally first because it's not worth not doing <laughs> You wait way too long. And you might be paying a lot of money as well to do it. So I think at the moment, it's probably not even worth sending to the quantum computers anyway. (laughs) I think the use of today's quantum computers is it's not good enough to validate the price of using one at the moment. It's good for testing. It's good for experiment. If you have the access, you know that it's going to work. The systems all work. Your APIs work. But using those results for something important, I would say you you don't get that yet. Definitely not. So simulation will tell you that it's going to work in the future when the quantum computers are good. Sending to the quantum computers tell you that your code is configured correctly, but the results, <laughs> they don't overlap. One is meaningful results, the simulation results. One will give you garbage results, but you know that your programs work in practice. <laughs> so that's the trade-off, I think.
0: It's a bit hit and miss. From what I've heard is it's the optimization problems are the ones where... This being more of a successful outcome.
1: I think actually, what well, was the last week IBM had that big announcement too? They ran that I have to read it myself. I didn't get a chance yet, but it was about a simulation uh, on their code. It appears have outperformed the classical computer. So those kind of things are important. Those things are known to outperform classical algorithms. Practical use cases of them, I have to read up more, and, but I'm thinking that there might not be one yet. At this early stage doing anything better than classical computer on a quantum computer is a breakthrough so having the practical part of that is not necessary yet it's about building meaningful computers
0: yeah you've done it again you've introduced me to something that i know nothing about boson sampling oh restricted model of non-universal quantum computation introduced by scott aronson and alex arkaboff I don't know what that is. It gives me something to go away and read about. Mm. <laughs>
1: Thanks. I don't know much about it either, but I know that it's what they execute on the Google, like the Google supremacy experiments. And also, you know, there's been a few iterations of people reproducing that experiment. So, where do you think
0: the cloud services approach for providing access to quantum computing is going? Uh, I think it's clear that it's going to be the main method for a long time. Mm-hmm. But do you think it could move away from the hyperscalers, or do you think the hyperscalers will go all in and certainly we see Microsoft working on their own quantum computer, same with Google mm. developing their own chips, a series of chips. Do you think it's just going to keep going in that same direction or you know what other influences on the market are there that could affect
1: that? I think until they have something like room temperature qubits, then it has to be like that. I don't see how the average small scale businesses who want to install a quantum computer for their own company. Even in that sense, it's too hard, I think. It's maybe, it's too expensive. It's too specialist for a company who's not making millions in profits and they can't afford that. So I think until there's room temperature qubits, it has to be cloud-based. That's my opinion. And I think the people who are going to do it are just going to be the companies who already have their cloud platforms in place. Like Microsoft, Amazon, IBM. To be honest, I'm surprised IBM has done it so well because I think But Amazon has most of the profits simply from the cloud services and it's already a huge company and they just really dominate in cloud services compared to starting from scratch. Yeah. My opinion is it's going to be the hyperscalers, the biggest companies around that will continue to offer the cloud services. The smaller companies who are building on computers will be under their umbrella. I think it'll continue like that until room-temperature qubits come out that we don't need to store these code of computers in such a specialized environment. Yeah, thanks. I,
0: IBM's an interesting one. You should definitely try and get somebody from IBM to come talk to us. Mm-hmm. So if they've got a history in mainframe and supercomputing, they do have their own cloud there's IBM cloud. And of course they also own Red Hat. Mm. So they're very embedded into Massive applications like Oracle and uh, CP, so they've got an interesting place in the market. It's like quite unique compared to the other hyperscalers and cloud providers. And yeah, they have definitely gone all in on quantum. The community around IBM quantum uh, quantum is pretty good. They're pumping out a lot of training materials and labs and really trying to stimulate the technical community, which I think is quite honorable mm. because it's quite costly to that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, definitely. These things are giving most of it away for free too. So all these high quality resources, videos, lectures, textbooks, software, APIs, this stuff definitely can come cheap, but I think they have managed to at least offset some of that with their IBM quantum network. It's quite expensive for companies to access the quantum computers. I don't know if they're cutting a profit off that, but definitely offsetting some of those costs for it, I can imagine.
0: I'm sure and it's definitely a long game yeah. for them right for anybody in quantum. Mm. So let's think about real world applications for a minute. In terms of a developer wanting to to use quantum powered algorithm in his or her code to solve difficult problems, NP hard problems, then are we looking at we often hear about financial modeling, drug discovery, those kind of things. What is it about the cloud services that leans it towards that, that those kind of use cases. Is it just that they're the kind of use cases with the difficult challenges at the moment and the cloud provides the flexibility, the scalability, Mm -hmm. elastic services. If you're running something on a single quantum computer via the cloud, you can very, you can quite easily use multiple ones, which by changing your code and maybe paying a bit more. Whereas if you're doing that in your own environment, obviously that would be Mm -hmm. extremely difficult oh, let's just build another quantum computer. Mm. It's not going to be that simple. But yeah, yeah. in terms of real-world use cases, what are your thoughts?
1: So to me, it's it's always a tricky thing to answer what's going to be the use case for quantum computers. I know the chemistry is there. Quantum simulation is there. Mm. Solving classical algorithms with quantum computers I think is very challenging at the moment because of the data loading problems where you have to load classical data to the quantum computer. Uh, So... With the cloud quantum computers, especially in chemistry, I think what you're going to get more out of is probably the size of the quantum computers. Maybe we do have room temperature qubits, but do we? does that mean we have 100,000 of them? Or can we still execute those in room temperature? So maybe if we have 100,000 qubits, maybe those are also distributed across multiple processors. So just having that like ease of access, I think that's the benefit, especially if you need something large scale. So if you have a Okay, Chemistry problem that you need a thousand qubits. Maybe they don't sell that kind of computer that you can buy in the near future. It's always going to be like one step ahead. Cloud quantum computers will always be bigger, more of them, faster. Like something's going to be better than the ones you can buy for your own business. It's kind of like supercomputing, right? It's like supercomputing clusters. The universities have tons of these things, but the average person doesn't have. 30 towers, uh, 30 racks of computers. And that's kind of like that. There's always someone who will need more power, bigger, faster. And there'll be some people who just need what they need at home or they need for their own use, like laptop power equivalent.
0: That's one of the great things that the cloud has brought, right, is to democratize access to resources like that. It's good for both sides. It's good for the developer who wants to access those kind of resources easily, a co- relatively low cost. It's also good for the owner of the compute platform or whatever the service is to monetize it globally, quite easily using the uh, platforms that are available.
1: I think that that's how it has to be used for now because it's so difficult. <laughs> Even the problem already exists classically too, the high performance stuff is already cloud-based, made frames and those kind of things. I think that we have a lot of analogies between the two, a lot of uh, Analogy between high-performance computing and quantum computing, at least until there's some new breakthrough. And I think it's likely. Like I believe there's going to be a big breakthrough in qubit technologies in the next 10 years. I don't know if superconducting qubits will survive, but at least they're working now. <laughs> the technology is still getting better with them too. But I think there'll be some breakthrough coming, it's the superior qubit that just takes over everything. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a lot of investment and hype in some cases, but that means there's a lot of investment and interest in the field. It's definitely a bit of a golden era for quantum, I think. It's all going in the right direction Mm. for something like that to happen. But you're right about high-performance computing. That's ultimately what it is, right? It's a niche in high-performance computing to solve problems which are uniquely difficult to compute using classical computing. So in a way, it's it's a slice of the HPC market. What I see anyway, but is it going to grow beyond that? I guess potentially, but it's so far away. We just a crystal ball doesn't see that far into the future. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think in the meantime, bringing it back to the networks, talk about like how to communicate with those computers from a non-local environment. And I think until they make a way to make things private, it's going to be tricky to adopt as well for most people. They don't want to give away their proprietary data. They don't want to send the data to the high-performance computers. No one wants to send private information to the companies who are selling that as a product, especially when they're directly competing. So I think until the communication protocols somehow mask those things, it might also be a, that might also be the bottleneck. It could be that no one uses them even if they're there because it's just not private enough.
0: Yeah. Now that's fascinating to know. So even though the technology is there to democratize and make it available everywhere, mm-hmm. it doesn't become appealing because that's the lack of privacy. Now, but let's just touch a little bit on what solutions there could be to solve that. So you mentioned before the quantum communication being necessary to somehow hide the algorithm that's running. You called it blind quantum computing. Mm-hmm. I think at a high level, what does the architecture look like there? What is the cloud provider, quantum computer provider would need to accept some kind of fiber point to point connection from a customer and then accept the requests encoded in qubits somehow? This could get extremely deep very quickly, I know, but is that ultimately what you think would happen? What's your initial thought? Considering we're talking about the cloud, right?
1: Yeah. So in the blind quantum computing, from what I can recall, it's about a a client who has very simplistic operations for quantum, like they can prepare quantum states and measure quantum states, but maybe they can't manipulate the quantum states in between those two steps. And they send the quantum states to a cloud provider who performs the algorithmic parts and then sends the quantum state back or makes a measurement on their side that they don't understand. Then they send the measurement results back. And then the person who sent the quantum states, they know what to do with the measurement results, they can basically decode them in a sense. And that way the provider doesn't know anything that happened. They just performed the execution. They don't know what the algorithm is. They don't know what the measurement results mean. So what that means is they have to have some kind of point to point communication with the client. And it's not completely contained in a local environment. So there are some non-local operations happening. And that would make things quite complicated because now you need quantum internet or something or quantum networks. And that's a big step to take <laughs> for something like quantum computing. So firstly, we need to know what to do with quantum computers. Then we need to put in the quantum network and then, and then it's safe to use for the average person. But yeah, that's a long road ahead, I think.
0: Yeah, I know these discussions are extremely futuristic. We're reaching right almost to sci-fi level. But yeah, it's an extension of the hardware manifestation of your algorithm across the network to the third party. Mm. How would they not know what the algorithm looked like? They'd have to be measuring each of the interactions and therefore that would break down. When you're implementing an algorithm chip, Is there a shadow of what the algorithm looked like in any way? I guess that all comes down to, you can't measure it, but it may come down to the hardware Mm. manufacturing if it leaves anything behind, so to speak.
1: Something I have to read up on again, but it's based on this concept of ZX calculus. And I think it's basically the circuitry is fixed for the quantum algorithm. And what is changing is the angles of the manipulation. So you're not sending a series of gates, but a series of angles and the gates are already fixed. So it might be like gate one, apply pi over two, gate two, apply pi over three. And somehow the combination of these series of gates implements the algorithm, And the but the angles themselves mean essentially nothing because you don't know what the input state is. And the measurement result is based on the input state and all the operations combined. So the output probably is meaningless as well, unless you have statistics. So when we come back to this topic, I'll make sure I understand it better, but that's my suspicion right now. That's fine. I think
0: that, the answer is probably no. And that makes sense because ultimately the position of the qubits at any point in time, it's very transitive. It's going to disappear very quickly. And there are many in a particular state and all interacting with each other in a, for a very short period of time. It's the way I see it. So there's no way to really capture that. Interesting. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> there's a lot of unknowns here, aren't there? There's a lot of stuff based in research and unless you're deep in it, every day then mm. to understand you're going to have it all to hand. The mm. Is there anything else you want to add on around the tools and resources provided by cloud providers or cloud-based quantum computing services that would be interesting to discuss briefly?
1: Mm. One thing that I found interesting recently is the execution pipelines you can construct using these software tools. This is something I'm also not so familiar with, but I've been reading a little bit. Basically, they call it quantum DevOps. You can set up complex infrastructure to execute quantum algorithms in, I don't know, in a complex way. It's not just sending your algorithm and getting the results back. You can already put things in place to pre and post process and also you know, resource management. This is a topic that is emerging. It's like a new idea already seeing he talk talking about quantum DevOps, and that's going to be a way to manage the complexity of the quantum algorithms and the different structure they have to in comparison to the classical counterparts.
0: So to use the word DevOps, it's got to leverage something from traditional DevOps world, whether it be the pipeline management of changes right. and queue of you know, schedule changes and so on, testing, automated testing, perhaps. Mm. And also is there any benefit sometimes in spinning up temporary infrastructure? Because I wonder whether there's an overlap with infrastructure as code and spinning something up that needs to be done classically in a cloud because you don't have to compute locally, but then that is also reaching, I guess that's an extension of what we're already talking about is if you're running a, a classical algorithm locally and you're using a remote quantum computing service, you could then put that classical bit in the cloud and define it all in Essentially define it in code so it can be stood up and executed automatically.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it could simplify a lot if you want to write an API that has quantum components and you take out inputs and the whole input could be basically structured like the classical way. And then put environments when they're needed, take them down when they're not needed to save resources in the quantum, free up your reservations or make reservations when you know the load is coming up. I think that's what's coming. It's going to be. It's, I think it's no different than classical DevOps. I think all the ideas are going to be exactly the same. It's just a quantum computing component to that.
0: Yeah, fascinating. It'll be interesting to to discuss further at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay, should we wrap it up for today?
1: Yeah, I think we we discussed a lot.
0: It's- yeah. Lots of, lots of thoughts going on, pinging off in my head at the moment. Yeah. Need to go and lie down in a dark room again for a few minutes <laughs> to try and calm down. Yeah. It's still to you, Steve. It's just Monday still. Thanks very <laughs> much. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You're going to need your energy. Good <laughs> start to the week. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain. Especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. and I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word, it would really help us out.